Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that critically analyzes some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing with the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes miniseries. This is our fourth episode, and in this episode we are going to be discussing chapters 11 through 13. So to give you a little refresher on what happens in these chapters, Chris is going to do a recap. So chapter 11 starts having Lucy Gray had told Snow that she wants him to take seriously the ch- her chances of survival. Uh, meanwhile, Dr. Gall is having all of the mentors and students write papers on the positive aspects of war. Then we head into the interviews, which are hosted by Lucky Flickerman, which was <laughs> a fun callback or call forward. Lucy Gray's performance is amazing, except Snow feels lots of jealousy and judgment about her past and her past relationships. Eventually, he gives her his mother's compact to use with rat poison in the games, and then this section starts to close as the students gather together, and then the Hunger Games begin as it opens on Marcus's still-living but beaten body strung up in the center of the arena. Yeah... I know this is going to be in our first impressions, but before we get to our quote, I just have to say, I was like, no, <laughs> when that happened, because I know, I, right? I just so wanted, like, I just wish that he was just never even mentioned again. So you just had no idea. And then in my happy, probably wouldn't realistically happen mind, he's able to like live in the wilderness somehow because he got skills to <laughs> hunt. He'd go to 13 or something. But they would put all resources into catching him. Yeah. But I suppose we should go to a quote before we get, before I break the rules more, basically. (laughs) Exactly. Such a rebel. Such a rebel. (laughs) Yeah, so this quote is from chapter 12 as Snow is actually writing his essay about the positives of war. So he added a paragraph about his deep relief on winning the war and the grim satisfaction of seeing the capital's enemies, who'd treated him so cruelly, who'd cost his family so much, brought to their knees, hobbled, impotent, unable to hurt him anymore. He'd loved the unfamiliar sense of safety that their defeat had brought, the security that could only come with power, the ability to control things. Yes, That was what he loved best of all. I think that this quote is so powerful because this, I think, is such great foreshadowing into the kind of leader that Snow is. And we see this throughout the book so far, right, where we talk, he talks about how much he hates group projects. He doesn't like giving up control with other people. And, you know, we see this person who becomes president, which sounds nominally democratic, But he (laughs) has such undemocratic tendencies where everything is about control and that war itself is about controlling the war. Definitely. And when anybody does any actions that could kind of crack his sense of security and take a little bit of power away from him or the capital, then he needs to ruin them. Mm. You know, it's not oh, well, we just need to have a strongly worded memo sent to Katniss Everdeen. It's like, no, I'm going to do everything to destroy you and anyone you could potentially care about. 
Yeah, and and I love that, it, you know, I can sympathize that this is also about security for him and this idea of him living through war and having so much taken from him through war that being attacked is something that he hates and feeling vulnerable, something that he refuses to do and certainly to show other people. And so this kind of domination is the only way for him to feel safe. And, and that doesn't excuse his awful choices, but it does, I think, give really interesting motivation to him as character yeah for sure i mean that's the thing it starts out that impulse for control starts out very understandable Mm -hmm. but he never gets that feeling under control so it just rules the rest of his life and he does more and more terrible things to maintain it yeah exactly well you're you're clearly chomping at the bit to get into your first impression (laughs) so so what were you thinking um Are you trying to tell me I'm an animal? (laughs) Are you looking at me as the capital would look at someone in the districts? Uh, Perhaps I am. Perhaps I am. What's what's the line I think in there? Human but bestial? Ugh, this this writing. Right. But no, so so what are your first impressions? One of my first impressions is, oh dear lord, Snow is really grossly possessive. Mm -hmm. He put a rose in her hair and like the same one on his lapel, like just in case anyone needed a reminder of who Lucy Gray belonged to. Mm -hmm. I wrote in so many of my margins, just like black, yuck, gross. (laughs) (laughs) And how he felt like she belonged to him as though she had no life before her name was called in the reaping. Mm which I think was such a interesting way to show this possessiveness is just not a way that I would have thought about. But yeah, it's like, oh, when you meet the person, that's when their life starts. Mm-hmm. And then just to see how this jealousy like makes him so much more vile than he was before, not only just in the ways towards her and like these patriarchal ways, and especially as he still doesn't see her as his equal, but also vile towards other people, because that's when he's thinking things like about Sejanus's mom and like you could put a turnip in a ball gown, but it would still beg to be mashed. Mm-hmm. And calling Pluribus, you know, the silly old man who is, you know, like just like all of these like very negative mean thoughts towards others. So that was interesting kind of seeing that correlation. Yeah, this was for sure my my biggest impression from this chapter as well is just the gender politics in this, I think, are so on point and so poignant and and just so well done. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the idea that she belongs to Snow and that her asserting her existence is in and of itself defying him to his mind. And that's not something that would work if genders were were different in the same way. It really speaks to the idea of a powerful man. I think that it goes even further when you see how he deals with the implications for both Lucy Gray and for Tigress that they possibly had to resort to sex work because it's not just a jealousy, but it's also a judgment. And he chooses that he'd prefer not to know if that was actually the case. And that that's just such a privileged position to be in, to choose not to know things that people had to do, often in Tyrus's position at least, to help you. And I just think that that was something that was really, really 
poignant. And it got me thinking because as I'm thinking about what might happen in the book, there's always kind of a, a question in my mind of, is Lucy Gray playing Snow? Is she mm-hmm. manipulating him? And while I think that that is something that's not like awful, there's certainly, I think, a judgment that comes with her like kissing him and feeling like she's doing this to survive or whatever else it might be, but feeling like it's 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 wrong or just having a judgment there made me think more about, you know, how we sometimes see characters or I at least sometimes see characters in these ways and make these judgments that are themselves dehumanizing and certainly patronizing and at times privileged. And yeah, it's just, it was something that I could not stop thinking about throughout these chapters, particularly because of all those yuck moments. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I almost was like, I would rather her be manipulating him than, like, actually think that he's not bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I was also like, okay, she's 16, and she doesn't know all these thoughts that are going through mm-hmm. his head. Exactly. She only sees the nicer, kinder actions that he does towards her, and it seems like there's been very few people ever that have treated her well, whether those are District 12 people or, obviously, the Capitol. Then to see someone, you know, she said things like, you and Sejanus are the only people who have treated me like a human being. So I also can understand. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I do have some first impressions that are actually more positive. (laughs) Okay. So Sejanus just keeps getting better and better in my mind. Mm -hmm. When Dr. Gull is like doing her weird little hippity hoppity carrot and stick thing and she's like everyone's dying and you're and he's just like feeling sick (laughs) i was like i love you (laughs) (laughs) you're so great and i mean he just he's getting more and more defiant as every few chapters goes by Mm -hmm. which I really appreciate, you know, she's like, oh, it's all right, you know, if we find Marcus to drag him around in chains, kill him. And he's like, no, it's not your right. Like, I don't care what you say. Nobody has the right to do this. Mm-hmm. And I like seeing him come into like even more of a strong stance and outspoken stance. It also worries me because I'm like, you're going to get killed. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I have no faith in any character that I'm liking at this point because I'm just like, this is such an awful situation and I cannot imagine that this does not end tragically and I'm trying not to love Sejanus or any other character or Tigris or these other characters because it's like, what what is going to happen? What are you going I to mean, do? I mean, at least we know Tigris survives. That's true. We know she survives, but we also know that she becomes all of these things about the capital that are awful you know she is a stylist in the games and she is someone who cares so much about these looks and she's willing to alter her own body in these ways that, that's so different to the tigress that i'm really really loving in this book so far and it's i'm like true but she also without tigress everything wouldn't have fallen you know so at least oh for great. sure yeah um but yeah i i really do i've started loving tigress more and more as well because She has a compassion that defies her upbringing. Mm. She's just very socially intelligent, you know, from her saying that, you know, if Lucy Gray's willing to trust me, then I can wash and iron her Mm -hmm. rainbow dress. She knows that there's trust involved and also has the wisdom to say, try not to look down on other people who had to choose between death and disgrace. Like, 
calling Snow on some of his issues as well. Mm. Yeah, and I think, or I wonder how much of that is gendered, because though she and Snow are both, you know, literally in the same household, she is taking care of him in these very interesting ways where he's not cooking for himself. He's not providing necessarily goods and and bringing home money and all these other kinds of things she is and sure he's younger but that's and that's part of it too but he's got his grandmother and his cousin who are taking these two women taking care of him and so even though he's clearly affected by the want and poverty that the war and everything have brought on their family i think that he interacts with it in such different ways that he still has an entitlement that tigress doesn't necessarily have yeah definitely and I also like that there's they've started to show that not all of the academy students are as awful as we might think they would be, or as Snow is. <laughs> Partially, we don't get their thoughts. <laughs> mm-hmm. But also, like, Lysistrata, her saying, shouldn't the killing be over by now? Mm. And I'd rather not be on either the victor or the defeated side, and how we punish the districts enough and feeling just really disturbed by the the change that takes place and now people are like excited about the hunger games instead of it being like this somber event so i'm i'm enjoying seeing some of that too yeah these different levels of othering that people in the capital have for people in the districts where some Mm -hmm. people can't see them as people at all or or it's very difficult for them to do so and i think les estrada is a really good example of someone who clearly has empathy for them and humanizes them in a way that is also important to see because it doesn't make sense especially at this point for no one in the capital to have those those feelings and those thoughts Mm-hmm. But I did really love how is it hilarious heavens be no matter his advantages, hilarious always seemed to feel oppressed. Mm, yes. <laughs> so yes. I love that there's that too, because like, of course. <laughs> well, we should probably move on to our next segment, touch points. How we see the capital and Panem in this book reflected in our world. So yeah, I had a few, a couple small ones. One was, uh, he mentioned that when her her throat was damaged, they tried to soothe it with tea that was sweetened with corn syrup. And that was really interesting to me because when we think about like high fructose corn syrup today, it's it's very kind of processed additive to sweeten things. So I was wondering, I wonder if this is just a commentary on the increased use of processed GMOs and all these other kinds of things to the extent that that became kind of a new household item for sugar. But then it also made me think like, you know, after a war or after environmental degradation or what have you, is honey gone? Is something, you know, are bees not around anymore making honey the same way they have been in the past? Like we have tracker jackers, but we don't have necessarily hear of bumblebees that much. You know, obviously there's not enough evidence any direction to see that, but it was just these kinds of questions that I had. And it was one of the things that reminded me that, oh yeah, Pan Am is still supposed to be the United States in 100, 200 years or, or whatever it might be. Ugh, a post-apocalyptic reality where there's no honey and there's only corn syrup. Just corn Ugh, syrup. <laughs> it's the worst thing in this book. <laughs> but the main thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, which you kind of mentioned earlier, was Sejanus's discussion about rights and freedom, mm. which I thought was really, really interesting In if you think about the different discussions of rights that we have in our society. 
where the idea of human rights, rights that every person is given or just by being a person, is still a very new thing historically, less than 100 years old. Um, really wasn't codified since until 1949. So it's not something that just kind of is natural and certainly not something I would expect to see in a world like Pan Am, where when Dr. Gall talks about right, it's the right to punish. It's not a, a right that someone has as a human to be free or, or whatever that might mean, the way that Sejanus starts to think about that. It just also makes me think about different ideas of freedom. The freedom to do what you want versus the freedom from want or harm. And yeah, I just thought that was a really interesting, if brief, kind of battle between perspectives on who can have a right? Certainly Dr. Gall's perspective, and when I imagine Snow would, would later take on, is this one of the rights belong to a community and a government or institution more than they belong to a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So so those were, those were my touch points. What were you thinking? So I was thinking it was really interesting to see in the class discussion when they're talking about and like reading some of their paragraphs or sentences from their assignment about why is war good basically Mm -hmm. i just thought it was really interesting how some of the students were thinking about war and just resonated with ways that i think whether currently or historically people have talked about war Mm. one of them was saying that it felt like we were a part of something bigger and that reminds me so much of wars or occupation to spread democracy which obviously is said with the most sarcastic quote unquote ever <laughs> also you have a different student saying we all made sacrifices but it was to save our country and i feel like that's a little closer to the type of rhetoric that we see today certain sacrifices have to be made and maybe that means killing some people in another country it's not it's not great it's not what we want but it keeps our citizens safe and then there's also ideas of the rebels had started the war and that just reminded me so much of the iraq war and this supposed war on terror how Americans would talk about it as something like Iraq started this on 9-11, which obviously is incorrect, (laughs) but also not thinking about the 13 years of prior sanctions that the U.S. had upheld against Iraq. And Mm -hmm. it just very much reminds me of this way of looking at it as who fired the first shot without taking responsibility for oppressive policies that have, you know, ground millions of people into the ground and thinking about that as, if that's not violence and not instigating something. And so, yeah, that just really reminded me of that. And then... So true, yeah. You know, the rubble started it with something Snow had thought, but then something that he thought that I'm like, yeah, I I agree with this, (laughs) was that almost everything in war between its declaration and the victory parades seemed a waste of resources Mm -hmm. and outside the horrific killing of masses of people that is involved with war and some people see people as a resource for sure too but yes for sure (laughs) Uh, but outside of that it really is just such a waste of resources like the united states military budget for this year is 721.5 billion dollars that's many dollars that's too many dollars, yes. 
and on a planet that doesn't have infinite resources. How do we use so much fuel, materials, technology, etc. on war and military? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's ridiculous. And Snow did have one good thought. It was a cold way of thinking about it, <laughs> but it was true nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Cold because he's Snow? Yes, that's why. <laughs> But also, before we move on to our next section, the other thing I just wanted to touch on was when Snow was spending his, like, live TV time explaining how Lucy Gray wasn't really district because she was a part of the Covey. And that just reminded me of how, I mean, like, yes, she says that she is not part of District 12. And so it's like, yes, completely valid. Totally support that. But that's not the way he was using it. He wasn't mm-hmm. like, let's talk about the Covey and highlight their different sort of history and way of conceiving of kinship outside of national borders. Mm-hmm. He was using it in a way that just kind of reminds me how like bigoted people will subconsciously like their, you know, person of color friend or female friend or whatever it is through this kind of my loved one is an exception sort of mentality. So it's like my blank friend isn't, you know, insert stereotype of choice. It just kind of reminded me of that. Yeah. She's just one of the guys. Yeah. It's like the district people are all bestial, but she's not really one of them. Mm -hmm. She could almost be one of us in the capital. Yeah. It just reminded me how that twisted way of this is my exceptional friend And everyone else is in some huge bucket of something that I think is subpar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I guess we should move on to our Back to the Future segment, which is where we look at things that happen in this book through the prism of the original Hunger Games trilogy. Do you want to start us out? Sure. I think it's really interesting. In these chapters, we really start to get a lot more notice of Snow's relationship with the black market. And it Mm. reminds me of the Hob in District 12 in the original books. For both Katniss and Snow, they would not survive without this unofficial market where they could go and, for whatever reason, get around official sanctions or, particularly for Snow, status. And I think it's really interesting seeing these, these kinds of dynamics and the way that, you know, Snow talks about how when they got their their turkey dinner, that the only person they invited was their black market dealer. I thought that that was so fascinating because not only is this it the, really was yeah. the only person who they have a real relationship with, because he's the only one who knows where they actually stand and who can come into their apartment and see their lack of furniture and lack of food. And so they want to celebrate, but the only true relationship they have is this person who's providing them these things illicitly. And so it makes me think, rethink about the Hob in, particularly in the first book, peacekeepers are going there, like everyone's just letting it happen. And I think it's because these markets, though they are illicit, they're also seen as necessities for a community because if you don't have access to these goods, that's going to increase discontent. So in, in a relatively quiet functioning society, that black market serves a purpose. And so, yeah, I just thought that that was a really interesting element that really stood out to me in this uh, in these chapters. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. 
and that it was a place that Katniss could find community. And as you mentioned, it's the only person that they invited over to share in this great meal that they had gotten after years of having barely enough to eat. And, you know, that he's still in, in contact with him, even years later. Yeah. Also, one thing that we haven't mentioned yet on the podcast is, I'm fairly certain that that's also the first explicit queer couple we see in the books, right? Pluribus mentions his partner Cyrus. Yeah, they seem cute. I'm sad that one of them died. <laughs> I mean, but there's and obviously also the awful side of that where he talks about reopening the club and from what i understood selling women and ex- sexually exploiting women in the club that he'd want to reopen Wait, as well what? so yeah at one point when he's talking about how he'd want to reopen the club he says of course i'd be selling my pretties as well but on the weekends i'd want to just have people come in and see a show and that's when lucy gray would perform oh for some reason i thought that that was like his makeup and stuff that he was selling and, and maybe that's what it was, and I, I misread it, but especially after the implications from earlier. No, I mean, I, I probably was just reading positivity into that, <laughs> because I was like, oh, that's nice to have their cute little music club. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that was that was the kind of big one. The smaller ones I had was, I think Tigress's character's definitely interesting. The kind of aside about how she likes raw meat is interesting (laughs) yeah she always liked that yeah and i kind of realized as they're talking about her doing lucy gray's dress and providing a little bit of makeup for her how here she is basically the first stylist of the hunger games she's the first person who has that job and you know it's not until the bedding and things like that start to happen that that job starts to become important which i I think is, is is really cool and on the, the betting side, I thought while I was reading this, for the first time, the language, may the odds be ever in your favor, is that to the tributes or is that to the people who are sponsoring and gambling on them? Oh, no, I didn't even think about right? that. Right? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> because it's not like she's saying it like oh. like Effie. We don't see her saying it to Katniss and Peeta. We see her saying it to the cameras because they're literally betting on people and they're literally having odds on them. And so I just, I think it's, uh, yeah, that was a whole new way of, of looking at the old games that I never thought of before. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> but that's, that's good. That's terribly good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, what were your... What were your thoughts for looking back at the original trilogy? I was struck by Lucy Gray's song. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminded me of when you find out about Finnick having been sexually exploited mm. in the past. And how it's like you find out in this incredibly public setting. Mm-hmm. And like how you already love these characters before you ever find out this thing that just adds a whole new level of depth to their characters and experiences and yeah just how striking that sort of bravery is to publicly talk about something or you know in this case sing about it and I appreciate how for both of them it's something that is mentioned and it's realistic for the setting Mm -hmm. but also it can be a part of their character but without overtaking their identities and so yeah it kind of brought me back to Finnick a little bit oh that's so true that's a really really interesting parallel I didn't even think about that but that's yeah both Katniss and Snow as the POV characters are watching and learning this thing as Panem is learning it 
and such a big distance between them is their reactions where mm-hmm. Katniss is overwhelmingly compassionate and Snow is not that. Mm-hmm. But also like how us as readers, these facts don't yeah, do anything to really take over their identities, but for the viewers within the series, mm. it does because so true. Finnick is the playboy of Penem, right? And Lucy Gray, you don't really get much of a response besides Snow's internal responses. And then their grandmother's response of she's a trashy, dirty little girl, but, you know, she sings well or, you know, whatever it was. So you can see how it does really affect how other people view their character which is also accurate for how society would react totally yeah a couple others i was seeing was that one was snow's strategy for lucy gray is so like hamish's Mm. which is like the moment they hit the gong you run and you run as fast as you can and put as much distance as you can between you and the other players Mm -hmm. also it said just keep moving and stay alive until the others kill each other or starve to death. And that's pretty much exactly what Katniss did. And it just kind of hones in that there really can't be that many different types of strategies for people who are smaller. And when there's so few strategies you can employ, it just makes it all feel so much more hopeless, you know? It's a solid strategy of this is what you're going to do, but it's also such a long shot. Yeah, but it's also only a strategy that could have started this year because without the food deliveries, that's Mm -hmm. not really something that they necessarily would would have to think of, I imagine. I don't think there's any food there in the arena for them to survive on. Yeah. And they didn't have people to strategize with them. They didn't have mentors to even have a discussion about this is what the arena is going to look like. This is what, you know, yeah, that's a really good point. And then the last thing I had on this was just when Lysistrata, she's trying to be supportive of Sejanus when the games are just about to start. And she says, the sooner it starts, the sooner it can be over. And he just replies, until next year. Oh, such a good line. I know, right? Uh, But it just reminds me how the games are just never ending and Mm. how much you see that in the original trilogy. And how, like, this trauma will never leave and everything will remind you of it all year long. And every annual event is just going to bring it up all again. And so you see so much of the victors in, in book two, the, the different destructive coping methods that they've used. And obviously with Haymitch and also even for the capital citizens, it's a never ending thing. I mean, that's why they institute the victory tours that are like halfway between. So like Hmm. it's still just fresh on everyone's mind and mentors come back every year and the interviews and I'm sure they show like best of videos and do all sorts of things that all just center around this as social control because you can never get away from it. Also for these these kids that we're reading about, even the mentors, like that's going to stick with them every year at every games too. Mm. The kids that they mentored that got murdered in front of the screen that they were watching. Yeah. And that's also made me think now, I don't think we've heard anything yet in this book about how they treat victors. And so I, I'm interested in what, what that will look like if we if we get that. 
For sure. Yeah. But we should probably move on to our ruminations before we close out this episode. So what are you ruminating on? I think I'm actually ruminating on on Lucy Gray's song because mm. we've had conversations in the past about how sometimes songs in books can can be difficult. Uh, certainly they can for me where they can take me out of it and out of the flow and I don't feel like I'm getting everything when it's just the lyrics and especially look at like Tolkien's many, many poems and songs and it's just like... I was about to say like in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a really good example of it. And I kind of felt that way even for, for Lucy Gray's first song. But this last one was just really, really powerful for me. And I really felt I, I, I took a lot more out of it. And especially I started thinking and I and I still kind of don't know where to go on this because the book, I think, has these really compelling dialogues about gender and possession and all these other kinds of things that we've discussed and that the book, I think, is itself discussing and Snow is, is ruminating on himself. But I also so much saw the ballad that she sings as possibly something that you could read as being about the districts and the capital, where they have this relationship where it's exploitative and where one has more power than the other and where at times you just have to do whatever you can to maintain what you can, but that ultimately this powerful male-seeming figure that could represent the capital screws over the singer. And I just, I think that that was something that I wonder, you know, obviously the, the book is called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. This is the first time that a ballad is defined in the book. So it, it seems like it's supposed to be a very poignant moment. And I just wonder how much of that is intentional and, and whether that will be explored anymore. Yeah, for sure. And and I thought that too, and like how that would tie back to Sejanus saying the war had provided an opportunity to right some wrongs, but it didn't because things in the districts were worse than ever. Hmm. And the song is filled with hurt and contention. You know, you had chances to make this right, but Hmm. you didn't. And now we'll take that to our grave. And like even the kind of last question of, now what will you do when I go to my grave? Like Hmm. if if that's the districts or, you know, the Covey to the capital Mm -hmm. or whoever the oppressors are. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, that's a really another really really interesting way of looking at it, and a great piece to to put in parallel. So, yeah, just a lot a lot to chew on there. What were you ruminating on? Yeah, so I've been thinking about Dean Highbottom's character for a while. I mean, basically since they mentioned him and his addiction to morphling, mm. and so I've just been like kind of paying attention to what he's doing every time he like comes on the page and it's been interesting because in the part one it had mentioned that you know he came up with the hunger games dr gall was talking about and he was like well that was like purely theoretical Mm -hmm. and like he felt the need to say that he then says in the same conversation you know oh it's a failed experiment and you know he criticizes the funeral and then in these three chapters you know he's looking out for Sejanus saying Mm -hmm. your friend you should have him sit by the door and also like in the live interview said that like no capital citizens aren't a superior breed they're just better fed better clothed and a better dental care so yeah I don't know I'm just I don't know what's going on with his character. And I'm like, just wondering, how terrible are you? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so I'll be paying attention to that moving forward. It's an interesting idea that potentially he has this morphling addiction. Well, and he takes some right before the 10th Hunger Games start. So it's like one of those things where scientists working in something and then later their discoveries are used for weapons of mass destruction or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like just how those people must feel later. Um, if that wasn't necessarily their intention with what they were doing, and then somebody took that and ran with it to a horrible, destructive place. So I have no idea if that's any of that's true, but it's just something I'm interested to find out more about him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've been feeling similarly. He's almost t kind of taken the place in my head of like the mystery in every Harry Potter book that gets explained at the end. Like the thing that like... <laughs> has subtle references throughout the book that maybe kind of raise an eyebrow, but it doesn't really come together until Dumbledore explains it all and walks you through it. And so I feel like they're leading up to some sort of reveal that is um, something that will kind of illuminate some of the things that have happened so far in, in a hopefully an interesting and compelling light, but definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah, for sure. Well, guess we should look at what we're going to be discussing next week. Yeah. Okay, so since these next few chapters are a little bit shorter, we are going to be doing four chapters. So that's going to be 14, 15, 16, and 17. And that'll be what our next episode discusses. Yeah. We want to thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. Or you can go to our website at bit.ly slash geekbetweenthelines. And I would highly encourage you to join us on Patreon. Yeah. We've been having really robust book club discussions about these chapters as we go. And I've really been getting a lot out of talking with some of our, our supporters online. And if you want a group of really intelligent, smart people to, to discuss the book further with, I'd highly suggest you join us on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get in on those conversations, as well as all the other bonus content that we have for our patrons. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or search them for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.